The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Hi, Patrick. How long have you been playing drums? Uh, geez, I don't know. I think pretty much all my life. Really? What's ESG stand for on your button? It's a band from uh, Brooklyn from the 70s, and they're really great. So everybody yeah. go out and buy ESG records. Wow, nice plug, nice plug. Looking at this Mojo magazine here, if you can get this on camera, it's this Mojo magazine with their friends Jack and Wayne on the cover, and they did this write-up about the dirt bombs, and when I was on my way to practice to look at it, I ran out of gas because I didn't have any money, so that should tell you, like, the situation in Detroit. More, more beats. Ben and me. It's more. It's just, I mean, bigger, you know, bigger would, you, beat. would you rather have sex with one woman or huh? two women? Yeah. And That's then, the worst analogy. No, ever. it's the perfect analogy. Okay, go with it. A shopkeep. Yes. Shopkeep. Yes. Mm. I am in the market for a very specialized creature. Oh, uh, we have the best creatures here, sir. We have uh, big creatures. We have small creatures. I love this character. We have many. Whatever your creature needs. Yes, yes, shopkeep. That's very nice. But this is very specialized interest. I, I hope you know what I mean. I'm winking at you. Yes, of course, of course. You need a creature that can fit in your back pocket. No, that's not the special speciality. Oh, oh uh, I think I know what you mean. We'll take you into the back. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, th- when did you last change these beads? They're very sticky. Uh, we've never had beads, sir. Those are not beads. <laughs> Don't touch those. I am in the market for very specialized interests, and I think you know what I mean. I am a collector oh, yes. of only the finest dirt bombs. Mm. Mm. So far, I have collected... Mm. Hold you, on, I stubbed my toe. Mm. Let me tell you the dirt bombs I've yes. collected so far. I have collected uh, Mick Collins. Uh, <gasps> oh, I've precious. collected uh, Co- Co- Molina. That's very Fantastic. nice. Yeah. I've collected Tom Potter, Jim, <gasps> Jim Diamond. The Diamond. You know, the Diamond Dog himself. 
and um, I am looking for uh, Ben Blackwell. We have, and, but I'm looking oh, see yes, for yes. a set of drummers like Turtle Doves. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, I I know exactly what you're looking for. Oh, do you, Mr. Duncan? Please tell me. I have just what you need. Uh, let me just dust off this <sighs> Patrick Pantano. Do you have anything in beige? No. This has been a bit brought to you by the Third Men Podcast, and I am it's, your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. I'm your co-host, James Kaminsky. You know he's probably going to listen to this, and he's going to shut it off within 10 <laughs> seconds, going like, these, these people I trusted with my time. Yeah. Um, so we're a Jack White History Podcast, and we've been at it for 90 whole episodes, and James, woo, woo 90th. It's our 90th. Champagne, a champagne year episode yeah, it's, thing. It's I didn't have a, the paper I didn't, anniversary. I, I guess I'm assuming didn't have an end to that. It's the pants anniversary. It is. It pants. Yes, I like that. So uh, you know, sometimes on this show we well, it's, we're Jack White History pro- program and we go over uh, Jack albums and bands and such. And sometimes James rock stars talk to us. It's bizarre every time because Paul, I think. I think we play music journalists on the radio. <laughs> I think that's our char- Yeah, this show is the bit. Yeah, like the the intro bits have characters, but I think in the context of the show, we are characters that are music journalists. Yes. And we're bad, bad at it. And we're very bad at it. And yet still, we get rock stars who will talk to us. Yes. And this week, James, we're joined by someone who's been on our bucket list to talk to for a very long time. Buckethead? Yes, it is. It is Buckethead, yeah. <laughs> uh, we have uh, this guy's a uh, musician, a visual artist, photographer. He has been with the Dirt Bombs. He has been with the Come Ons. He has been associated with White Stripes stuff. He took album covers, multiple album covers for the White Stripes. This guy has been a central figure in the Detroit music world for a very long time, Mr. Patrick Pantano. Nice. Patrick is a force, a dirt bomb force. He's been in so many things that we've listened to over the past three years with this podcast, and uh, it was such a pleasure to be able to talk with him. Super nice guy, super interesting stories, exciting interview. Yeah, it was really great. He was super nice and very generous with his time, and as we alluded to in our terrible bit, we have talked to now a lot of dirt bombs, and you'd think we would be running out of things to talk about by now, and yet so many great stories from Patrick, and and we were just thrilled to have him on the show. So we're going to get to that. This is another extended interview episode. We're pretty happy that... You know, 90 episodes deep, we can still get these pretty cool interviews for you all to enjoy. We're going to get to that, James, but before we get to all of that... <gasps> is there something we should start smelling? Uh, that is the most astounding fact. The most astounding fact. The most astounding fact is the knowledge. James, would you like to tell the people what I think I smell a fact is? I'd love to. I think a smell of fact is the portion of the show in which we find out some new information regarding old topics and relay it in this segment, 
right here. And today we have a couple. I'll just shoot off the first one here. It's from listener Adam Kinney, who uh, wrote us on Facebook to tell us in relation to the Brendan Benson Secret Origin episode 89. He had a little Brendan fact for us here. He said, Brendan produced the album of Eric Burden with the Greenhorns. Yes. And so I didn't really know that, and 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 we got to talking about the Greenhorns a little bit, and I think the Greenhorns are a blind spot for you and me both. So I think really what that amounts to is, hey, we're going to really have to do a Greenhorns episode. Definitely. Surprisingly, Eric Burden, I did a little research on this after the fact, Eric Burden of the Animals fame, which we did briefly mention that he did something with Brendan, but not... That's right. We didn't really go over much of it. The David Lynch Foundation thing? Yeah, he was at the David Lynch Foundation benefit... And Brendan also produced a couple of his albums. Like you said, Paul, and like Adam said, the Greenhorns album. Woke up this morning under a low ceiling sky. Lord, I got that feeling like I'm fixing to die. did an Eric Burden EP on Ready Made. Really? Yeah. And he was there at some of the Day Trotter sessions. This will actually segue into some more facts that I smelled. The Day Trotter sessions, the ones that I found were in 2009, right around when I said that they were, but they were apparently ongoing sessions that would happen in 2009, 2010, 2011, doing different songs, different things at different studios. So these Day Trotter sessions, there are quite a few of them, and uh, they're really cool stuff. I don't really know much about them, so that's very cool. Yeah. Paste Magazine goes along with Brendan, and they just kind of sit down and record some music. It's some nice raw recordings of some of these songs, occasionally with musical accoutrement from people like Eric Burden, someone on piano possibly, or someone on drums. Yeah. Uh, it's cool stuff. Other things I have found out about Brandon Benson, mm. look, I know we skipped over a lot, but I learned that the touring group during his Lapalco tour was not just the well-fed boys. The alter ego of the group that Brendan toured with during the Lapalco sessions was in fact a band called Mood Elevator. Weird. Yeah, with uh, Chris Plum and Brendan Benson, hmm. and it sounds very Brendan-like. should listen to that and also i just learned via pitchfork that brendan benson fronted mood elevator as well so he was also in this band mood elevator (laughs) okay 
There you go. Some of the other bands that Brendan toured with, he had a, a backing band called The Bent Sons. <laughs> oh, which that's good. That's good. I love. I love those kinds of backing band naming, like little cutesy naming conventions like Margot's, uh, she has the price tags. On top of all that, I and a lot of these are coming from a, a fan, unofficial fan website for Brendan Benson that I found like after the fact of like, really excited to read through some of this stuff yeah uh brendanbenson.wordpress.com by the way for those of you interested there is a fan story on this site that i found hilarious that i sent to you paul apparently at a show a san diego gig uh somebody threw a t-shirt at brendan benson on stage on the t-shirt was scrawled who the f- is jack white oh that's right yeah <laughs> and uh it was printed on the shirt and brendan picked it up between songs and he said genius that's f***ing brilliant. Thank you. Um, and uh, apparently it's a reference to a poster of Keith Richards wearing a T-shirt that says, Who the f*** is Mick Jagger? Um, oh, that's very good. And that's so it, very good. Yeah, it's pretty great. You get a lot of Lennon and McCartney comparison with those two, but I'm, I'm happy to hear some Keith and Mick comparison <laughs> with those two. <laughs> anyway, that all that's to say is there's so much information out there on Brendan that we didn't get to, and I hope to at some point, but always more stories, and I'm here for them. Yeah, I mean, hopefully one day we'll we'll get him on the show and we'll be able to ask him ourselves. Yeah. But until that point, we'll just have to... When I reflect on that fact. All right, James, what do you say we get in this interview here? Let's do it, Paul. To Patrick Pantano. Away! like to welcome our very special guest this week, Pat Pantano. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's amazing to have you on the show. No, thanks. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, we appreciate it. I took a look at the website and I saw that you, you talked to almost everyone already, so I feel <laughs> I'm either lucky last or, I don't know, it's, it's either an insult or a compliment, I guess. Well, we still have to find E-Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Oh, I heard from E-Wolf in forever. You have had a long musical career connected with just about every piece of music James and I love from the past 25 years or so. You've been one of our white whales because your name pops up in so much stuff that when James and I are are researching, we often see you pop up in association with all kinds of bands, not just the Dirt Bombs and Jack stuff, but stuff like the Come Ons, which were a revelation to me when we started doing the podcast. You know, it's one of the great things about this show is we found a lot of different music. And so uh, I guess we just wanted to sort of start at the beginning and talk a little bit about what your musical influences were growing up. What set you on the path to music and sort of art in general? Uh, I don't know. That's huge. Um, You know, (laughs) just as a kid, I took to music, I guess. I just, I remember waking up in the morning and my parents gave me a little clock radio and I would set it for like five in the morning or something or some way too early to get up for school and just sit there and listen to the Detroit rock radio and yeah. And then my sister had records. And then I think it probably really kicked in when I sort of discovered the Ramones and just punk records and something that was just seemed perfect. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing that. And then I immediately wanted to play the drums. I kind of taught myself how to do that to the bare minimum, just enough so I could be in a group. <laughs> now, did you go out and buy your own drum kit? Did your family approve of having a kit in the house? What kind I of- bought a kit. I never bought a new kit. I never actually chose the drum set that I had. It was just sort of like somebody down the street was selling a kit. I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember setting it up in the basement. 
I didn't have any cymbal stands, so I remember tying ropes to the ceiling and then a knot <laughs> and it hung down. And so I, you know, like, and then I taught myself to play that way. That is amazing. It's <laughs> like some sort of weird space age setup you had going on there. Yeah. Well, a lot of people have stories like that. I think a common thing is they didn't have any legs for the floor tom, so they would set it on a milk crate or yeah, I would sit on milk crates too. It was just sort of like you you sort of did what you had to do, I guess. Now, if you ever tried out for a band, did you say, hold on one sec, I have to tie the cymbals to the ceiling because that's how I'm comfortable playing? <laughs> no, I don't think I ever tried out for any bands. But, I, but yeah, it sort of started there. And then and then just anything. Like, I've just sort of, at, at some point, uh, I've talked to Mick about this, and he, he thinks it's a Detroit thing. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but, like, I never really got all that interested in sort of genres or what was... Like it just sort of like music, just any anything on record, and sure, I didn't really listen to classical music too much or any sort of traditional European, but kind of anything else mm-hmm. was just like up, you know, just be open to it and really excited about it. Do you have any guilty pleasures from your youth? Musical guilty pleasures you want to uh, embarrass yourself with? Um, <laughs> no, I know there was some Debbie Gibson in there. Come on. No, I mean, I think that anything anything I liked, I pretty much still stand by, for the okay. most part. Right. No guilt. I like it. That's fair enough. I remember, well, I had a Dag Nasty record, and I don't even remember if I listened to it that much, but I was going through records at one point in my life, and I listened to it, and I'm like, God, this is terrible. <laughs> I don't know why I ever owned it, but I guess that's about the only thing I could think of. Okay. I mean, no, I just, you know, the people, you know that I know and respect and talk about music with and Mick and all of us and when we were touring and stuff we would just jump from talking about a Sun Ra record to a Beyonce record and with kind of equal enthusiasm it it never seemed like a thing nice all right so you're playing drums in your basement with cymbals tied to the ceilings how do you go from there to a band did you have a couple high school bands that you sort of started out with yeah what is your trajectory toward band proper Kid friends in junior high, we had a band and we played covers and just like a basement band playing like Who songs and stuff. Right. And then... That's tough for a drummer to start on Who songs. (laughs) I don't know. Those were great. And, you know, like the Beatles or whatever. I don't remember being the person that chose the songs. Like I was kind of a bit of a, I think, the outcast because I would have wanted to play like Stooges songs or something. Sure. I don't think they were into that. And then, I don't know, there was another band that I was in for a really long time called The Colors, and uh-huh. we made a couple records and even did some shows out of town. Oh, 
lasted for longer than anything. Mm-hmm. Like now, in retrospect, I don't think about it much. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't have a huge impact, though it probably did, just because I was in with those guys for a really long time. Pretty much everyone in that band is a lawyer or became a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> They're all very successful. So I'm, I'm the only loser or, or winner, depending on how you look at it, of that crew. Um, <laughs> And that sounds like the makings of a an excellent like Vince Vaughn movie where he <laughs> like somebody needs to put a band back together and so he goes from law office to law office to gather the old band and get them to go on a world tour. Oh, <laughs> uh, it'd be like the world's most boring Blues Brothers. Take. <laughs> We're putting the band back together. Like oh, I've got a meeting. We're on a mission from Co. Can't really do it. I've got a meeting. Anyway, um, and then I played in. Cat House, I think, was an early group I was in, and they did a record. early 90s try to place the time period here (laughs) yeah oh no it would have been a little later than that like mid 90s okay yeah there were some big breaks and then i did those first recordings with mick and then i moved to pittsburgh and then i put together the come-ons and then i moved back to detroit and joined in proper with the dirt bombs and that kind of brings it up to what you guys probably know about what brought you to pittsburgh uh you know i change i yeah just remember it just not clicking for me at that time and i just thought i'd move town i knew some people there and it seemed like a great town yeah at some point you became a member of the steel miners yeah that was in pittsburgh they were a pittsburgh man okay which makes sense because pittsburgh's a steel town right uh, in general that's a, a kind of a burst of activity in the 90s do you have any stories about that or a little bit about the band or how you got started with them um you know it was a friend of a friend and they needed a drummer and I went and played with them and we got along and sort of clicked and, you know, we played a bunch of shows and then Greg from Get Hip wanted to do a record and we recorded an album.
sort of started not getting along with them. And for whatever reason, we had issues and I just like, oh, I'm just going to fail from this. But at that point, I just kind of wanted to get back to Detroit because Pittsburgh's great. But I felt like Deanne Ivan had started the come-ons. We, we had sort of started the come-ons. Mm. And we thought, well, if we're going to have a band, we should be in Detroit. We'll skip ahead a little bit to talk about the come-ons then, because uh, as I mentioned earlier, they were really a great surprise to me in discovering them. And I heard that album, The Ghetto Years, and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. There's like a jam bandy quality to it, almost, in its sort of repetitious kind of nature, but it's just zone-out rock and roll, which I really, really love. Tell us a little bit about getting the come-ons up and running and a couple of those early albums, how that all worked out, because it sounds like the come-ons were sort of interspersed between Dirt Bombs and other projects. Yeah. You know, Deanne and I put together the band. We wanted to play music together. I thought she was an amazing bass player and singer. And, you know, it was kind of just us two for a while. And we did some, like, home recordings and things. Ben Blackwell famously just, like, is really into this recording we did where we did Dirt by the Stooges and Tonight by the MC5. And just, it was sort of bass and drums and then we had a Farfisa organ that we played and so it was just those three and it's just a really cheap recording and the organ is really overdriven and mm-hmm. has a great moment to it and there's cassettes of that floating around but that never got pressed and Ben's always threatening to press that somehow. <laughs> um, Whose vault is that set again? Is that in the Cass Records vault or the Third Man vault? He has, yeah, he definitely has one. Um, I'm sure I have one somewhere. Um, they're around. And then we moved to Detroit and just kind of tried to fill out the band. Got Jim Johnson, who is the bass player in Cat House. And I didn't want anybody that sort of played guitar like traditional guitar. And he was more of a bass player. And then we just kind of have, you know, members came and went. Like, I think Deanne and I both had different viewpoints about what we wanted to do. And so there was, for better and worse, there was a lot of push and pull Mm -hmm. and compromise. want to push each other in a band you don't want it to be placid like that probably yeah for sure yeah i mean i like i like those records it was like pulling teeth getting them done <laughs> but they're really good so we made a tape we sent it to sympathy we sent a bunch of tapes out <laughs> and um, old friend long gone <laughs> yeah long gone called i remember at had a department in detroit and coming home from the bar and like pressing the answering machine tape message that dates the whole thing um and uh Long Gone John doing it. I can't do Long Gone. 
<laughs> I love hearing everyone's impressions, though. It's everyone has one. Yeah, <laughs> my long gone sounds exactly like my. Um, like there's four or five people that have that same sort of hour, and it's just so <laughs> weird. Like, uh, you know, the famous gangster. Uh, you talking to me, that guy? Cagney? You dirty rat, that guy. I don't know. Come out and take it, you dirty yellow-bellied rat, or I'll give it to you through the door. Yeah, so my, my long gun sounds like Cagney. It's terrible. <laughs> Jack used to do a great long gun. Really? I remember Jack had, like, he's hilarious answering machine messages. Like, and that was just something, you know. That, that Every tracks. time he called his house, it would it'd be something funny. And one time he he just answered it as long gone, and it was just <laughs> perfect. <laughs> but that long so gone good. called and left his message saying he really liked it. And... Um, <laughs> And I called him back. I was like, cool, we'll do a record. Like, is there some sort of contract or something? And he got a bit <laughs> indignant. And I was like, oh, that's fine. I mean, I was just thinking more for your protection. I mean, what, you're about to hand us a bunch of money. It, wouldn't you want some proof that we're not just going to? He's like, no, no, that's fine. So then we went and we recorded with, we had already had half of it recorded with Jim Diamond. And we went and recorded the other half. some touring worked on a second record i want to know all about the complicated video and what that shoot was like because it looks like you guys are having fun in that one yeah that's ewolf he did that oh really okay cool yeah we went over to ewolf's little photo studio and there was a video camera no actually ewolf didn't do the video we just used ewolf space and he was there okay he didn't just break in and (laughs) no we just needed a space um And that was, I think it was the guy that did the It Came From Detroit documentary. Oh, oh, right. But yeah, he did that. I don't know. There's not much to say about that either, except for, yeah, we just sort of had fun. It was kind of, it didn't really have a a huge direction. It was just sort of, let's do a video. Okay. He wanted to do a video for a song. We were like, cool, we'll do that.
that can lead us right into your photography credits, which are pretty extensive. You've done photography for the Come Ons. You've done photography for the White Stripes, etc. What came first? Was it music or photography? Uh, music, probably. So what led you into photography? I just always really liked it. Kind of the same thing that led me into music. If I sort of got into something really obsessively, like my first impulse is like, I want to do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's some people I think are just kind of consumers of things and are, appreciate things from an outside. But my first impulse is like, oh, I need to make one of these myself. Right. right. <laughs> so I was just really into photography and looked at photos. So I had a camera and, you know, took some. I took some classes, but that wasn't until later. I kind of had the camera before that. But I never was one of those photographers that obsessively got into gear or the technology of it. It was kind of the same philosophy as the drumming right. and the yeah. music. It's sort of less about technical precision and more about just what you can get out of it and having an interesting voice and just pushing it to a place where you're not completely comfortable anymore. Yeah. Yeah. If you're creatively driven, you can kind of pick up. And I, I think John Lennon once said that if you handed him a tuba, he would do something interesting with it. So it's less about the actual instrumentation all the time. And usually it's just a creative impulse that you have to work through. Yeah. I mean, earlier we talked about Mick and I and everybody kind of talking about not really caring about what kind of music you like, just listening to all kinds of music. And more than one occasion, people have sort of asked like if they look through your record collection, or I remember one time walking out of Car City Records and I had, I forget what two records I had, but I had like a Black Lips record and a John Coltrane record. Mm-hmm. And someone stopped me, and oh, what did you get? And they sort of like were trying to press me as to like what was common to the two. Like, why are you into like these divergent kinds of music? <laughs> Which I never really thought about before. It's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't so that question would come up, and I, the only really good answer I ever thought was just sort of bands and musicians and people that are pushing what they do to the point where they're no longer super competent at it. Jack was always really good at that sort of thing. He would, like, put limitations on himself and, yeah. you know, famously, like, put the organ way too far away for him to get to in time right. for the part <laughs> and stuff like that. It's just, like, create this environment or at least push your own talent to the point where you're not exactly sure what's going to happen. You're not totally in control. Mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, like the Black Lips could barely play their instruments, so they were on the edge of what they could play. And then John Coltrane was always famously pushing himself to the point where he wasn't entirely sure, even though he would practice every second and could do anything with the horn, he would make it a point to push himself. And so I, I think, for lack of a better answer to a question that you didn't even ask, um, <laughs> That's where that comes from. And so with photography, I would kind of always subconsciously never get too technically proficient with my equipment just so that I could... What's that expression? Nothing important ever happened on purpose. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. To just kind of put yourself in that place where you can make photos that are interesting without massaging every part of it. Nice. In your band photography, I guess that comes with its own special skill set doing a still life versus sort of doing a landscape or versus doing a band like there's different criteria you kind of have to hit and it also seems to me that there would be some considerable contact with the designer maybe i know bruce brand had done a lot of design around your photos on especially some of the white stripe stuff we had talked to bruce a little while back and got his perspective on it but my question is twofold what goes into band photography and what kind of contact do you have really with the design team after that if any yeah it depends it depends on the situation like 
as far as the design team goes, like oftentimes I would just do the photographs and hand them over. You know, you make it a point to edit it. I mean, photography is 99% editing, whether you just sort of, whether you're editing in the moment, like picking the moment you release the shutter or, you know, picking which photos actually are presented. Right. So I would try to edit well and as far as band photography goes, it's never something I really set out to do or wanted to do. It's just sort of like, I'm in a band. I know musicians. They need photos. I can do photos. Let's do photos. <laughs> but there was always a little bit of a push and pull as to what an interesting photograph is versus the purpose of this photo. Mm-hmm. If it's a promotional photo in a newspaper, you've got this idea that like people are going, it's, you know, you look at the page for 1.68 seconds or whatever that statistic is. And it needs to be something simple and graphic. And But then that always doesn't make the best picture. So you, you're kind of like finding that fine line. Right. So I would just, yeah, I would take the pictures. The White Stripes were just like a band or portrait photographer's dream you there was only two of them it was really symmetrical i mean it really spoke to my in my yeah my obsessive compulsive symmetry needs and and there's only two colors and it was and they looked great and they were just perfect and jack had really strong visual art ideas and he's really good at with his eyes as well so you know it just those pictures were a joy to take but then you would get bands like, oh, my band has 19 people in it. And they're like, cool. All right. I have no idea how I'm going to make this work. <laughs> um, <laughs> the dirt bunch. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I ended up taking pictures of a lot of the bands in Detroit at that time. I mean, some that were used for a lot of things and others that weren't and mm-hmm. various other things. Yeah. You had mentioned doing photography for the White Stripes. So you did the cover of White Blood Cells, which is the third consecutive Stripes cover done by a different dirt bomb. You had uh, <laughs> right. Co doing the first one, E Wolf doing the second one, and right. you doing the third one and the fourth one, actually. Yeah. So for the White Blood Cells cover, was, who came up with that photo shoots kind of aesthetic, the us versus them kind of thing going on? Was that one of your ideas, one of Jack's ideas, one of the record label's ideas? Uh, no, it was Jack and I talking about those sorts of things. Jack had an original idea of having them stand in a river of sorts like waist deep in a river and and then to somehow color the river red as if it was a blood vessel like or blood vein i guess well that's cool it was just a vague idea and um we drove around we did a bunch of days where we kind of drove around and did different pictures i remember the day we were thinking we were trying to find a river and water it was freezing just absolutely freezing so there's no way anyone's getting in the water um, but we managed to get some really beautiful pictures, like the one on the back where Jack's sort of helping Meg across the river. Okay. Is yeah. that what's going on? It always looked like a little cave to me. That's a remnant. Yeah, no, it's a, right. it's a little river. I, Jack sort of intentionally manipulated the photos digitally to okay. kind of overexpose them in a lot of things. And yeah, so that there, but I've got a, <laughs> I've got a gorgeous outtake from that of him helping her across the river that's and it's really sweet and has these great colors because the whole rest of it since it was like almost winter everything was dead and everything was the same sort of odd brown mm-hmm. gray and then they had like bright white and red on and it's sort of a gentle moment where he's helping her yeah. and uh it's a great picture it's a great outtake from that i really like that one interesting nice but we did that and there's a bunch of other outtakes with them standing by water and 
the Hotel Yorba single mm-hmm. yeah. was done that day. And okay, cool. <laughs> the picture that they ended up using isn't necessarily the best picture of that bunch, but it's the only one where they don't look like they're freezing. They literally were <laughs> shivering. Yeah, I mean, I think they're in short sleeve shirts and stuff. It's really clear in all the pictures. It's like your teeth are chattering. So that was the only one really where it didn't look like they were freezing. It might sound silly <laughs> for me to think childish thoughts like these. But I'm so tired of acting tough and I'm gonna do what I please. Let's get married in a big cathedral by a priest. Cause if I'm the man that you love the most, you can say I do at least. Well, it's one, two, three, four, take the elevator at the hotel. You're about to get to see you later. All I got inside is vacancy. And it's a four, five, six, seven, grab your umbrella. But then I had this idea, I think it was my idea to have a million, like do a sort of paparazzi scene where there was a million photographers standing around them. Yeah. Like they were celebrities. And Jack had the idea of like these amoeba characters, these like bad germ cells, you know, coming at them. Right. So, you know, it was just a fun day. We got everyone we knew together and put them in black turtlenecks and black stocking caps and had them all. We did all these shots of them <laughs> crawling closer and closer. And we picked one and then we did another shoot with them holding cameras. And Jack kind of formulated like connecting the two. I think in my mind it was going to be one or the other. Yeah. And yeah, we just like spent the day taking these pictures and it was great. Worked out really well. You said you gathered people you knew. Who are in those bodysuits? I need to know. Is Mick Collins one of them? <laughs> Mick is not one of them. I am going to forget. Blackwell's one of them. Oh, Swank. Awesome. Swank is one of them. Long Gone John is secretly one of them. He's he not, wasn't invited, but he's, he's in there. Not, um, <laughs> the drum, I think, oh, I forget his name. The drummer for the Wax Wings, Dean Fertitta's band at the time. I think he was there for some reason. And uh, Marcy Bolin, who was in the Von Bondies, was Mm -hmm. one of them. The bacteria Marcy. I'm trying to think. As she's credited. Yeah, it's a question for Blackwell. He's really good at specifics. Okay. Yeah. He's good to tell stories around because I'll say, oh, there was this one time that's one place and he'll roll his eyes and go, it was 2006 in Spain. I'm like, oh, right, right. Anyway. (laughs) Um, So he would remember all those people i i'm trying to yeah i know like swank was one blackwell was one marcy poland a couple other people that's awesome well you also mentioned the hotel yorba single did the yorba staff mind you guys being outside for a long period of time no i mean i don't think we were out for that long i could say it was freezing we never ran into them but i remember hearing later jack telling me that they were going to do a video in one of the rooms yeah. for Hotel Yorba. And it's going to be great. And so they went. And it's famously like kind of a transient, like who knows what happens in that hotel sort of thing. Yeah. And they just at the front door were just like, no, you're not. And they were like, look, it's it, we're not going to do any. Like, and they're like, you're not bringing cameras in here kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, oh. And I don't know if they actually ended up talking them into it or not. But I remember the story that was that they couldn't get in or they were they were definitely not wanted. I hope I, I told you that I had a smile on our face and we were very, very positive with love when we walked into the Hotel Yorba. 
But I cannot tell a lie that uh, whether it's a Hotel Yorba or a Kentucky Fried Chicken, a uh, bulletproof glass is not a great way to make friends. I believe they were chased out at some... Like, they made it to the room without the cameras, because I know Brendan Benson had talked about leaving the cameras behind and not and just recording up there, but... Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't have any run-in with them. We were just on the outside, uh, you know. On the subsequent White Stripes album covers, they're significantly different in that they're sort of set up like still lifes in a way. I almost get like a Frida Kahlo kind of vibe from the just the structure to both Elephant and I guess Satan later on. But what led to the design inspiration for how Elephant was set up in that way, the album cover? It was all Jack. Yeah. Like, not 100%, but... Well, first off, I remember hanging out with him one time, and he kind of sheepishly, half-apologetically said, like, hey, look, you know, we're going to do the next record, and we've got this thing where every record that we've done, we've done, you know, with a different engineer, a different studio, and a different photographer. And so... Because I had, all that year beforehand, been doing a lot of press photos for him and little promo things, and anytime Jack needed a photo, I would, like... Mm-hmm. run over and do one so there was a bunch of photography i was doing and and he kind of said look we're not gonna i want to use someone else mm-hmm. and i was like yeah of course whatever i mean that's totally cool and then at the last minute i got a call from dan miller who was yeah i, I don't know if he was properly managing them but he was helping jack with some scheduling and logistics and stuff and he's like hey come do the cover and i was like uh all right so at some point Either the person they chose couldn't do it or they changed their mind or I didn't really ever get a clear answer. But so for some point, so I went to this studio. Yeah, Jack's like, we're going to be sitting on this crate and it's going to, you know, we're going to have all this elephant ephemera around us and ephemera, for lack of a better word, (laughs) elephant related stuff. Um, And, uh, and, you know, hopefully when you blur your eyes, it's kind of kind of make the shape of an elephant head and... and, um, there go with it and i was like great that sounds great and so it was a proper studio (laughs) it was different than before when i had shot them where it was my own bunch of cheap gear but i did end up using like my old twin lens Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so even though there was a bunch of fancy gear around i ultimately ended up plugging the lamps into my old antique camera I think there's a bit on written somewhere in the liner notes of that record, like nothing in the making of this record, you know, is digital and nothing was made after 19 whatever. And that holds true to the camera too. Wow. So anyway, um, my input was just sort of lighting, technical stuff. I did do one thing kind of for myself and I did it subtly enough because I didn't want to ask and throw another variable into Jack's pre-made design. So I kind of did it subtly thinking maybe someone would notice, but it was more for myself. This idea that I 
hit them hard on the left with a really hard light mm -hmm. to like create a shadow of Jack's coming off him that would line up such that it looked like a third member. Huh. And when you look at the records, it's not really there. I mean, depending on the different layouts, like Jack would manipulate the photos. So in some, you can see it a little more than others, but like this idea, you know, he, the, of the number three and the Trinity and like Jack sort of having this like unknown variable that functioned as like a third member. And like this kind of idea that I had in my head that I wanted to just kind of maybe peek in there a little bit mm -hmm. that I never really talked about much because I didn't want to make it a big part of it. I kind yeah. of just, it was a subtle thing. And so that was maybe a little bit of an input. Mostly it was just the lighting mm -hmm. and the, how it was captured and, then we did a bunch of other little shoots that day. We did one of the singles has the the mouse running by, and right, those right. those two, you know, with their toes up, you know, hiding, like running scared from the mouse. That single cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did that that day, and a picture of Jack painting an elephant, like as if he's painting Meg. We did that one. Right, right. I think that's the Seven Nation Army. A lot of little little pickup things. Yeah. That's the way that happened. Yeah, I love those photos. Yeah, they're fantastic. Really happy and proud to take them, to be a part of some small footnote in that band's history. So, you know, I mean, yeah, the, I, I said this before that I'm proud of those photos, but they're great photos, not really f for anything I did as much as for the fact that those guys make great records. Like, they're not bad photos. I like them, but I've got just as good of photos that aren't in 10 million homes, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, they're iconic more because of what they accomplished. But I'm still, I'm really proud of them and really happy to have done it. And I think they're great. And I think the White Stripes have always been one of my favorite bands. So Nice. Did you file their records to the end? Or did you sort of drop off when you stopped working with them professionally? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you listen to them? Yeah. I'm one of those people that just like pretty much every note they ever played, I just think is great. Yeah. Just the whole vibe of the band has always been great. Yeah, I guess I have my favorites, but no, I, just, I never, I always liked them. I always thought the records were great. Cool. Like the Get Behind Me Satan record, they had a big budget for it and they brought in this photographer they really liked and I was talking to Meg the night before and she's like, oh, we're shooting that cover. And I was like, oh man, can I come over and just vibe out and just like hang out and watch this fancy professional photographer work? She's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I called Jack the next morning. I'm like, are you sure this is cool? I mean, do you got a close set? He's like, no, come on over. So I came over and watched those guys put those shoots together that was really fun. I ended up kind of like assisting the photographer a little bit, just carrying some gear and grabbing some things just because maybe he, I don't know, maybe he needed it. I, I can't remember. Maybe I was just making myself useful because I felt like I was hanging on. But yeah, it was a similar sort of process. Jack had these really strong ideas and then the photographer kind of had to just kind of flush it out with the lighting and stuff. Well, since you were there and we've asked literally everybody who was there so far, do you know what Jack was holding on that cover? What he's holding? Yeah, he's holding like a round... It's a microphone, white. isn't it? It's like a big, long, white tube of some kind. Right, right, right. Bruce told us he thought it was a, a pill bottle of some kind. Ben Blackwell refused to comment. <laughs> a lot of people have said that it looks like a Tesla-like light bulb or something. I, I don't know. Uh, we, oh, I'll have to go back and look at that. In my mind, it was a microphone, but maybe I'm wrong. 
I know they're holding a microphone, I think, in the single cover, I want to say. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. No, the microphone's above them. That's what it is. There's the white microphone. Uh, like right. In the middle. Right. And what is he holding? And Jack's holding a, like a round oblong thing, and Meg's holding the apple. <laughs> I knew what it was at one point. Man. Because when I was there, I think he mentioned it, but now I can't. That's okay. Yeah. Still a mystery. And <laughs> those things are better as mysteries. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. So one thing about these interviews when people talk about the white stripes like so much of them maybe not so much anymore now that it's in longer history like people have information and stuff but one of the fun things about them at the time was a lot of the mystery surrounding it and so i was sort of loath to like be too specific about answering questions even though you know i wanted to be honest like oh totally I'd just be like ah uh, you know people would say tell me stories about the white stripes i'd be like no <laughs> <laughs> they were kids in a schoolyard that's where i found them. <laughs> yeah. that's what led to me and paul talking about it here and now is like we were so enthralled in this mystery we wanted to learn more and dive deep into it and even when stuff isn't solved for us we're just as happy because you know there's still more for us to wonder about right yeah like the identity of e-wolf which several people have independently confirmed to us (laughs) (laughs) yeah but which we have kept off the air for uh reasons i guess only known to mr um yeah uh, Uh, real name you mean yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, half seriously and half joking, you'll have to ask him what percentage of each is each. But when you ask him about that, he like held to Ewolf for sort of a same reason Malcolm X put X. He's like, yeah, screw you. I'm not going to use my slave name. You know, just there you go. that's my that's my chosen name that I've given myself. And it's always hard with him to tell whether he's joking or not because he's a big <laughs> joker. Um, but I take that as serious and I respect that. So yeah. I call him I call him Ewolf. Oh, well, there you go. Wouldn't insult him by using his Christian name. <laughs> James, a couple things I just wanted to touch on here before we get back into the interview. Pat Pantano's bands, prior to or during or in addition to the Dirt Bombs, his his other musical projects, I just wanted to stop and just sort of tell people like, hey, these are really cool. Like, they're really good. And we'll get to the commons in a moment, but particularly the band Cat House he was in. Mm. So I wound up finding... A CD. It must have been an extremely limited run CD. Wow. Of Cat House. I was able to pick that up and, and put a couple songs in this episode, but well worth digging into some of this stuff. It's it's very interesting. There's other bands too, but getting into the come ons a little bit. Patrick mentioned a a cassette that Ben Blackwell keeps threatening to put out. <laughs> <laughs> You can find those. Really? Like, there's one or two floating around that I found on Discogs. Really? So they exist. There's a photo of it and all this stuff of the come-ons, and I guess Ben must be in possession of the master tape or whatever it is with in his cast records. Wild. Sort of vault. But, um, Did you get your hands on one? No, I didn't. Okay. I wasn't about to go that crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I found enough to kind of keep it going but hey the come-ons are 
Excellent. I mean, everybody should run out and listen to the Come-Ons, if you haven't already. Definitely, yeah. We learned about the Come-Ons a little bit in the Comalina interview, but a lot of great stuff there. Really interesting uh, stuff about the photography, too. Yeah. I knew that he did a lot of uh, photography for the Stripes, but hearing the story of them trekking out into the middle of the woods into a river i want to see those negatives so bad Um, no but i i wasn't about to ask him but i would have loved to have uh maybe you know gotten a sneak peek i know because he said the photos are still kicking around that was a revelation to me because i always thought that the i didn't know what was on the back cover of blood cells i didn't know what i thought it was a cave yeah you i said i think you said cave i just thought it was some sort of like digital abstraction i didn't realize it was this pixelated woodland scene i had no idea yeah i i always knew it was a, a crazy like in the woods but i had no idea there was a river involved or any body of water for that matter and some of jack's ideas it would have been really cool to see like the cover and stuff come to fruition them being blood cells in like a river uh, that would be the blood. It, it's interesting stuff. I was. It is interesting. Fascinating. When Pat was telling us that, I was having trouble visualizing it, to be honest, because it, the image of it in my mind was like kind of corny. Mm-hmm. But like them in s- sort of like a, a Carol Burnett show style blood cell <laughs> outfit floating down the river. But then I don't think that's what it would have been. I think no. it would have just been like them sort of floating. Like, I don't know if anybody out there watched Battlestar Galactica when it was on, but there's like a whole episode that takes place where Apollo is just floating in shallow water. And I guess there's a way you could do it where it would be creepy looking or something. See, in my head, I was picturing them standing waist deep in a body of water wearing all white and being okay. being more metaphorical blood cells in what appears to be a vein or whatever. Um, yeah. Um, right. I think I was thinking about it like a comic book cover. Like I mean, you shoot it, like, <laughs> like you shoot it from above. Yeah. They're in inner tubes. Uh, that no, not in inner tube, but that's that. See, that's why I was having trouble picturing it. But if they were actually floating, like doing a dead man's float or something, mm. or better yet underwater, ah. under the water, under the sea, things are going to be better down where it's wet. <laughs> The bottom line is I'm glad they went with what, what they went with because it's a, it's, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a much more practical idea. But some, I think what they wound up with is a very iconic cover. Yeah. Something yeah. that's easily translatable into three colors. Yes. Anyway, without uh, further ado, we're going to get back to this interview, which has a lot more great stuff. And, um, and we'll see you at the end. Yeah, let's get back to it. Well, the mystery thing I was talking about, also another mystery I, you might be able to solve for us. Have you any leads on Coe's uh, missing van that went missing in Detroit <laughs> years and years ago? Yeah, we're trying to track this thing down. Oh, that van. <laughs> Do I have any leads? Her white van that she got a pretty payout from an insurance company for. Right. Where were you on the night of... <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely nowhere near that van. Um, yeah. Well, It I had a drum kit in it. My thing... Which I've asked Co, and she, of course, denies. I'm kidding. But I, I, I was just like, you got a pretty big payout for that. <laughs> She's like, shut up. <laughs> you, you dismantled it in the middle of the night and buried the parts. <laughs> Said, look, it was stolen. With poor Ben Blackwell's drum kit in it. Right, just... right. It's all buried in Meg's backyard. Somewhere. And a painting of a clown, apparently, too, was in there that was found in a... A thrift a shop. A thrift store. That's right. Yeah. Oh, Dorian's. 
Yeah. Oh, sh- forgot about that. Yeah. We're getting slowly, dirt bomb by dirt bomb, we're, we're <laughs> learning more about what was in this van, what happened to the van. We'll get there. Um, oh, yeah. I guess I guess that's the good thing about being last in the interview. I can either confirm or deny certain <laughs> reports as much as my memory allows. Um, uh, yeah, that was there was a few things lost. I, I guess the biggest one being Blackwell's kit. And, yeah, Dorian had some little things she had bought on tour and one of them was like that creepy clown painting (laughs) and i'm pretty sure i found another one and everybody was that was the big thing like is it the same one (laughs) yeah (laughs) there can only be so many yeah Uh, stuff like that's probably pretty mass produced but yeah the fact that i don't know yeah yeah mass produced but perhaps not mass purchased so that's really what we're coming down to um yeah well so let's let's talk a little about the dirt bombs how did you wind up getting involved with them did Mick approach you were you a fan of theirs and just sort of were in the circles long enough to sort of be absorbed into the dirt bombs which is it seems how it's often how it often happens uh tell us a little bit about that i was one of the original i was like the original the first time mick ever did anything under that name like i remember going to see this is my being in the dirt bomb starting story going to see blacktop at the old Miami. Oh yeah, they're great. up with Mick. I was like, hey, Mick, oh my God, it's good to see you. I hadn't seen him in a long time. And in my memory, <clears throat> I mean, it's a dark bar, but he's holding like a basketball sized ball, maybe a little smaller than a basketball. He's palming it mm-hmm. and he's talking to me <laughs> and, and, and it's black. And I'm occasionally like my eyes drifting to this thing. And we were talking, so I never really got to ask him like, what is that ball you have in your hand? But it, I didn't really give it much thought, but he was when we were talking, he was like, I'm going to start this band. And he had it down to the point. Like, wow. he, he, it's going to be called this. It's going to have this many members. It's going to sound like this. We're going to do this. About the only thing that didn't actually come true was the whole idea of it was going to be a singles-only band. And he wanted it yeah, right, to have right. a start and a finish. And the finish would be when he made enough singles to create a block. Right. And, That's, right. Um, That's right. Yeah, seven-inch by seven-inch block. Yeah. I was like, yeah, of course. Whatever you want to do, man. Just give me a call. And, um, <laughs> and then I and then he's like, oh, I got to go play. And then he goes off to the side of the stage. And I realized what he was holding was his suit. Like he used to wear a black suit. And he had been on tour. And he was just literally like taking his sweaty suit off and wadding it up into this thing. And he was carrying it around. And he just like unwadded it and put it on. It was the most wrinkled. Oh nasty thing i ever saw but then they were great and he was great and um and then he called me one day he's like let's go record a single and we went we drove around picked everyone up and he had a little task cam to cassette four track thing and we like pieced together some songs and then we went into a proper studio and pieced together another couple songs and those were the two singles 
Catch your flight for 11. Make shit my way to heaven. Make a bump stick, hydration. Try to speed the consummation. Supercharger, fuel injection. 14-1, compression. Tunnel ram, do quads. Fill it up with the power of God. Fill it up with the power of God. And then I moved to Pittsburgh mm -hmm. and then he put together like I guess what you'd call the first lineup that didn't really last that long, but they did Horn Dog Fest and a handful of singles. Then mm -hmm. I moved back from Pittsburgh and just was immediately back in the band. Yeah. Just kind of like I went and saw him once and it was Ewolf and Handyside were the two drummers. Mm -hmm. And I saw him play and then Mick called me and he's like, Handyside isn't going to be in the band anymore. I want you to be in the band and we've got a show in Toronto. So can you come play it? And I was thinking like, well, we haven't, I haven't practiced with them. So I don't know half the songs, Yeah, but Ewolf will be up there. And uh, I'll just kind of follow him. It's like, they're not that hard. So I, you know, kind of spent the ride up listening to the tapes and stuff. And I got to Toronto and Ewolf didn't show up. Oh, geez. So, yeah, my first show back was playing, was the only drummer with songs I'd never heard. This is a common theme because Co had the same experience where Mick handed her a cassette that had all the songs for her to learn and they were in a different key. So she learned them all in the wrong key. Yeah. You know, it happened. We did it. We finished. I don't remember anyone kicking us off the stage or booing or anything. I, Diamond was in the band at the time, and he did a lot of turning around and kind of like nodding in and out changes and stuff uh, like that. And he kind of helped me okay. through that yeah. one. Your fellow rhythm section man. Yeah. And then it was me and did a couple recordings with some various people. Ewolf, I think, was one of them. And then... Yeah, I was just like, I met Ben, and I suggested Ben as a drummer. Little baby Ben. Little baby Ben, who was, you know, <laughs> hanging around shows. And um, I think I had to be told he was super young. Like, I just talking to him at the bar, like, it's some guy, and they're like, you know, that kid's like 15. I'm like, really? <laughs> and um, so I was like... You mean oh, the one Coe's giving shots to? <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, it's like Jack's nephew, and I, I remember telling Mick about him, and then I'm speculating, this could be completely wrong, but I think that he forgot he was Jack's nephew and called Jack, like, at seeing if Jack knew anybody, and then he's like, yeah, there's my nephew. And then I think it clicked in his head, like, oh yeah, Pantano mentioned him. <laughs> so he got him on the phone, and he, they talked, and it was like, they were immediately the kinship, the cosmic family that we're all part of kind of right. clicked and it's like all right you're one of us come on oh, that's great <laughs> but maybe that's not the way it went maybe that's just by that tracks from what we've been told yeah right so then it's me and mick and ben and then there's in my mind like people talk about like there's a million lineups and a million people went through that band but it's like ah there's kind of three lineups mm -hmm. there's me and mick and ben with potter and diamond 
And then there's me and Mick and Ben with Co and Troy. Okay. And then there's other people that kind of handled transitional states in various spots. But I guess I never called that a lineup or an actual member or whatever. But Mick loves having a million members. Like if somebody comes in and like claps hands on a recording, like they were in the band as far as <laughs> um, So that's kind of the way that goes. Your fellow uh, album art designer and uh, or photographer, visual artist, uh, Patrick Keeler, was also one of those transient dirt bombs. And we asked Nick about that and he did confirm Mr. Keeler was involved at one point. Yeah, he sat in for me, I forget how many shows, maybe four or five. There was this thing where I called the booking agent and I was like, the come ons have this tour. Don't book anything from this date to this date. And he's like, all right. And then he books a Dirt Bombs tour that ended like four days into it. And I'm like, you idiot. And so I kind of went to both bands. I'm like, this is my situation. And neither of them wanted to budge. I'm like, dudes, you guys. <laughs> so I was like, Mick, can I sit these last four shows out? Can we get someone? Can we get E-Wolf? And he's like, ah, Keeler's already there. I think that Greenhorns are supporting us. So that's the way that I remember that. Hmm. He might have done one other show. Like, there was a few crossover come-ons things. Like, the booking agent refused to not book the Dirt Bums. (laughs) Somebody could be having heart surgery, and he'd be like, all right, I booked a show. (laughs) I mean, from what I've been told about the Dirt Bums' medical conditions, uh, that doesn't surprise me. We've heard many a story of people hurting themselves in that band. Oh, like, on stage, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, also... (laughs) Also just hurting themselves and continuing to play. So even if they had a heart attack, you guys would definitely still be there. That's mostly Blackwell. <laughs> he was the only one. Yeah, we heard he hurt his head real bad. He hurt, uh, he hurt himself a bunch of times. <laughs> because he was really into like, you know, at the end of the show, like getting out all his energy by swinging around. And it was really great performance. <laughs> and he yeah. would jump up on top of tall speaker columns and jump off them and jump into crowds and he would have a lot of fun with that but yeah invariably he would get hurt he went he dragged (laughs) his drum set out into the audience in again that's where i need him to tell me what town i want to say it was it was europe i don't know if it was england i forget where it was i think i've seen photos of this actually kelly stoltz band was supporting us and he jumped up on his own bass drum kind of out in the middle of the audience and it rolled out from under him. <laughs> he came down on his side or on his stomach and, and like, might have broken ribs or knocked the wind out of himself at some point. He was down. He's like, he just said to me, I was in so much pain. Like it just almost was going to throw up. He finally got up and, and ran backstage and everything was fine in the end. But, like, I watched him from the stage come down and just, like, there was a few moments with him like that where, like, man, that had to hurt. Yeah, it's like playing drums in your parents' basement, except with this one, it's like, hold on, we got to tie Blackwell from the ceiling. Hold on one second. <laughs> right. There was a place in Philadelphia that had a pipe. Yes, he told us the pipe. Like, if you can picture, like, there's the stage, and then if you look up, there's a pipe, but it's forward a bit. You know, it's, like, above the audience. He ran and jumped and grabbed it and swung back and forth and then swung himself back onto the stage. And then afterwards, when we were loading out, I looked and the distance was massive. I don't know how he made that jump. It was like a good, <laughs> whatever, 10, I don't know. In my mind, it was like no human could jump that far. I'm like, how did you do that? That was a good one. I don't know. There was, but he didn't get hurt there. Were you always off in the corner just watching this happen or did you break a drum kit or two? I was usually still playing. <laughs> 
<laughs> like he was allowed to do these sorts of things largely because it was a two drummer lineup and like okay. we didn't have like specific parts so much as our just our general playing personality would come through trying to play the same part. And so if he felt the spirit of God possess him, he just had to get up and jump and, and he would do that and the band could keep playing because there was another drummer. So I would be playing watching all this. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you were a much better influence than Tom Potter would have been. <laughs> as an influence? I don't know if I was as good at in, as any... Well, what kind of influence is Potter? Potter's influences never really took with with Blackwell, I think. <laughs> he was like big drinker and stuff, and Ben never drank, so... Yeah. Co was telling us that uh, Tom was the party spirit, and then when he left, she inherited his party spirit and became the party dirt bomb. Were there any other party dirt bombs, or was it just Co and Tom? Was there a quiet one? (laughs) (laughs) I remember at one point, Deanne Ivan was asked to fill that role, and she's just like, you know, I just like, Tom Potter is like the flavor flave of that band. I can't be be that, you know? (laughs) He was like he was he was really good for comic relief. I mean, he would take the mic and he would just be, you know, all amped up and and telling jokes and dancing around and yeah, th- that's kind of what Co had to the shoes Co had to fill in. Which she was not Tom, but I mean, that was a some people loved that, some people hated it. Some people were like, "Oh, I love that guy." With and other people would be like, "Why is the bass player just constantly talking?" Like, why is he- <laughs> Like, ah, uh, you know, you'll have to ask him. I don't know. Thank you. Let's slow it down for the folks who are dancing. Yeah, the groovy number. Got to see. Groovy number. By the way, I'm not a Sagittarius. Sagittarius is cool. Don't want to get our karmas mixed up. Yeah, the flavor flavor is that that's that kind of role that fuzz bass. <laughs> well, with the dirt bombs not on tour, you worked a bit with Andre Williams uh, with essentially the dirt bombs. I know uh, Discogs credits it with the dirt bombs, but you worked uh, on a couple songs with Andre. What you gonna do? And you got it, and I want it. Mm-hmm. How did you guys hook up with Andre? Was I know Mick produced that album, I believe. He but. produced one side of it, I think. Is that the way that goes? Okay. Or no, am I thinking of the Doll Rods? I think it was Black Godfather. Yeah. Is the album? Mick and Dan had... Somebody pulled Andre out of wherever he was sleeping and, and got him to make that <laughs> that silky record in Detroit. And mm-hmm. Mick and Dan kind of put that together for Lariat in the Red. And so, yeah, when they were going to do the Black Godfather... They did it with a bunch of different people, a bunch of different bands. Like, not each song, but like each chunk of songs was done with a different group. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, because you guys did two basically. Yeah, and so and John Spencer did one, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that was just sort of like 
Andre's going to do more stuff with Mick, and Mick's like, all right, and I forget who the band was at the time. I want to say it was me and Handyside. Just, that doesn't make sense, but I think that's who I remember being there. And Diamond, and I forget whoever else. And, you know, Andre's crazy. Just yeah, <laughs> totally insane person. But it was the first time I had met him, and he had a bunch of great stories. And so we did those songs. I sure did love you. I love you with all my heart and soul. But you took advantage of me, baby. Cause I was a little old. But what you gonna do now? Now that I much more to it than that we did a live show diamond put together a band and like i was the drummer and diamond and i forget who else was in the band we rehearsed a couple times and it sounded great and then andre got way too high just got on stage and just it was terrible (laughs) i remember we were starting with shake a tail feather and there's that whole intro that dun 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 and he's supposed to go on like bring it in yeah and he was just drifting around the stage and he never did it and it was like literally for like two or three minutes we're going dun 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 oh my god finally I think Diamond you know called in the change and 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 we managed to finish the song but he never sang any of it he just like just like kind of meandered around the stage it's terrible. Leave it to Jim to try and wrangle the situation. There you go. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's an interesting guy. The The album itself sounds fantastic. It's a very crisp sound, especially on uh, What You're Gonna Do. The drumming's really crisp and clean on that. So the recording went well. I thoroughly enjoyed both songs. Andre is, like you said, an interesting fella. Yeah. And uh, he's worked with a lot of alternative music, grunge music, punk music. Like, a lot of different genres than you'd expect him to work with. It's interesting. I saw the credit in there, and I was drawn to it because I follow Andre a little bit. It was It's always bizarre to me, and it does seem like someone Mick would kind of be drawn to, and Dan Croat, too. Yeah, those old records are great. He's just a handful to work with. I mean, I think if he was, like, kind of sane in any way that he would have been able to play with the same people, like, for... Though, but he just like kind of had to find new bands. I remember one time it came up like, "Do I want to play drums for an Andre tour?" And I was like, "Oh God, no! There's no way I'm going on tour with that guy. Like, who's going to resuscitate him when he dies? For one, I mean, because here's a guy that's a million years old and he's still running around trying to find drugs. Yeah, like I was just like, I have no faith in this man's ability to stay alive. Like I'm not going on tour with him. I do think he's sober now. I think he's been sober for a couple years. Yeah. Going back to uh, James, what you just said about surprise credits, you had a couple, Pat. I just want to touch on very quickly here. One of them was uh, 
you shot uh, some of the Gorgor Girls album art, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Any memories of of that shoot? I I, re- I went up really loving that band. I think particularly. I think it was after the first co or maybe after the Tom Potter interview. We did a fun shoot with them in a hotel room. And that was like this first lineup that included Deba Goli, who's this really good drummer from Detroit. who was in a band called Viva Cauldron a million years ago. If you want to look that up, that was really great. Cool. Oh, yeah. It was her and Deanne Ivan. And but yeah, we did a shoot in a hotel room. Uh, and that was fun. I was taking pictures of a lot of the bands at the time. Yeah. I did a lot of Bantam Rooster yeah. photos. Nice. And the Detroit City Council later when Tom put that together. Right. And it's a great record. The Electric Six when they were the Wild Bunch, they did when they went through a lineup change, like I got a couple I've got some photos of them that are really good and the Von Bondies and Soul of Dead Brothers I did a bunch of pictures for. Nothing that ended up on any of their records, but some that were used for press. And I took some great pictures of them that I really liked. I did this great picture of them sort of inspired by like craft work and Russian propaganda pictures where they're like against a oh, cool. red background staring off into the, <laughs> the the bright future that is communism. And it was great. Um, <laughs> I, I just feel like there was so many at the time. Well, here's my other surprise credit question for you. The Seeger Liberation Army. I didn't realize you were involved with them. I wound up really loving Intervenus Eyes. That's the album, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I really like those Seeger Liberation Army, those songs, but I only, I'm not on the whole album. Okay. I'm on, like the way that happened is Tom had a friend, maybe Tom and Jim knew this guy. I forget his name. But, his, but he had a band, and they were from out of state, and they were going to come in and record at Diamond Studio. And at the last minute, his band couldn't come or canceled on him or something. And Potter was like, forget it. You've already got the time. We'll put together a band. Mm-hmm. And they called me, and they're like, what are you doing tomorrow? Do you want to come and record? And I was like, yeah, sure. It'd be great. And I showed up, and then Potter's like, all right, here's the plan. We're going to do Seeger covers. Okay. <laughs> I was like, uh, all right. And uh, Jim from the New Bomb Turks was there. I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, I just happened to be in town. And he's like, wow, that's great. So <laughs> it was this fun lineup. And Tom picked four Seeger tunes. And we learned them and played them. And I thought I played great on it. And it was super fun. And when I listened to them later, I'm like, these sound great. Yeah. And Tom sang them really well. And it was really fun.
came out as singles, two singles. And that was kind of the end of that. And then one day out of the blue, a million years later, someone says, like, there's a whole album of those. And so apparently Tom... <laughs> put together some other musicians and, and filled out the album. I don't know how many more songs. Okay. All right. I can tell you. I have the album right here. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I'm only on those first four. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. So Jim Diamond's on almost all of it. Okay. Yeah, he might have done the rest of them with him. I'm sure that makes sense. You have Frederick Belden on guitar, James Weber, Nick Lloyd. Right. Michael Walker. Nick Lloyd would have probably been the drummer on the stuff that I'm not the drummer on. Gotcha. Yeah. And Fred was the friend that whose band didn't show up, which is why we had the studio time and we were able to do that. Cool. Yeah. If my memory serves me, which it often doesn't. So. <laughs> well, we only got a couple more questions. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your book with Third Man Books? If you don't have a picture, then you didn't catch a fish. Um, I laid that out as kind of an experiment of doing that style. Of, I mean, it's, again, an editing project. What was my life like? There was a lot of touring. And I was also trying to do different portrait projects and kind of living my life in Detroit. And I was going through all these photos thinking, can I create some sort of narrative with all these little moments? Hmm. And it was also, I thought, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get a book published with stuff I'm doing that's kind of more artistic, but maybe somebody would like to look at a book that included bands and musicians and other things. So I put it together and laid it out. And I thought, oh, this is pretty good. And obviously the first choice would have been Third Man. So I sent it to Ben and Ben. And I was like, no pressure, but this is a project that I'm going to try to pursue with publishers. And um, the obvious choice is you guys. And they were like, oh man, this is great. But, you know, we don't have third man books up and running. We don't know any book publishers, especially not photo book publishers. And the whole thing, just like, I'm going to give it to Jack, but sit on it. Still, good job. So, cool. And I sent it to some other publishers. And then at some point, they were opening third man in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And Swank was like, I want to make it an event. I don't want to just open a store. Let's have a bunch of like limited release things that pertain to Detroit and a party and a, you know, let's just make this something special. And then one of the ideas someone over there had was let's do a limited edition press of that book Pantano made. So Swank wrote me and he's like, is it cool? You know, if it doesn't like come out in major international distribution with a hardcover and the whole nine, but we just do a limited press to celebrate the store opening. I was like, yeah, of course. That's great. Oh, Let's do that. That's a good solution, yeah. So they did that. And I went back and forth with all the technical stuff and this pressing and, you know, trying to make it the best I could. And um, Chet that works there, I knew from the days he was in a band called the Immortal Lee County Killers. And, you know, they stayed at my house one time when they were touring Detroit, and I knew him, and he was just, like, the best guy. And he's like, Chet is running the Third Man books. Like, oh, I love Chet. So I worked with him on it and um, got it done and, you know, couldn't be happier. It's great. Nice. It's really fun. I mean, I nitpick it any time I look at it, (laughs) as in the whole thing. But... I'm glad it saw the light of day, and there's an editing flaw in it, which is interesting. Cool. After looking through it a thousand times and having a thousand people looking through it a thousand times, <laughs> there was one mistake, which we discovered way later. Like, oh, no. Eh. 
There's a photo that's in it twice. It happens. That'll just be up for people now to find the book, pick it up, find the photo, send it in, and we'll find a prize for it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> a no prize, as Stan Lee used to call it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's nothing major. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to downplay it, but it's very much meant to be a kind of a fun little photo book of touring and doing other little things. It's fun. Sure, still captures a time for sure, because you're getting all sorts of bands who you're touring around with. It's better than a tour itinerary because it's, you know, a little more personal. You get to see where the band was. You get to see who was with you at the time. You're, you know, it's interesting. I like it a lot. Yeah, I think what it would have been a better idea, and I don't know if I pitched this to him or not, like we've gone back and forth with a million ideas, but was if that was a like twice as big, but kind of interspersed every other page with Blackwell... Oh, writing stories about being on tour. That's a cool idea because he has that blog. Yeah, because my photos are missing context and his stories are missing, you know, the color of a photo. And and they might have been a really nice. Right. But, you know, we're both busy. Who knows? That's an interesting idea. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll do something like that in the future. I don't know. Well, like Mick likes to say, Ben's a journalist. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's not a drummer. He's a journalist. He has a great mind for dates and times and 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 he can spin a yarn and yeah so that's all you need like yeah he's a good journalist yeah i would love for us to do something together i mean if we had different lives we both talked about how great it would be one day to kind of go on tour but not have to play like see all the places we went to (laughs) but there are so many places we've been that we were there you know somebody says have you ever been to and they name a town like yeah and they're like what do you think of that like dude i was like in the club and the <laughs> hotel and the drive out of town like i so to kind of visit these places again would be really fun and i thought if we did that in such a way that our paths crossed and we actually did some traveling together and we could kind of do photos and writing and stuff and but those are people that don't exist those aren't us. Uh, well, hopefully you'll be able to get something like that together one day because, you know, part of what we love about doing this show is it helps fill in a lot of gaps for that particular period of time for all those bands coming out of Detroit. And you were such a, an integral part of so much of those different acts in one way or another that I can't think of anybody better aside from Blackwell and, and you know, a couple others, Mick, th- th- people like that, too compose something like that because uh you know we're interested in the information the story is interesting you know the story of of detroit at that time is Hmm. fascinating and so much beautiful music came out of it so anyway thank you for the beautiful music and thank you for the photographs and all the art you contributed to that movement i guess uh, that really brings us to our last question here shoving aside all of that tender stuff the last question here is about mr ben blackwell and since he was the baby of the dirt bombs People tend to have stories that are kind of embarrassing involving Ben, whether it be Tom Potter teaching him to shave <laughs> or rolling uh, out from under him on a bass drum like Fred Flintstone. Oh, <laughs> I would have to think about it. I don't think I, well, I don't know. It depends on what you call embarrassing. Like having Tom Potter shave him, I don't think is embarrassing. I think it's kind of, <laughs> it's endearing in a way. It's actually, now that I think about it in memory, it's like kind of cute. Um, we did tell Ben about that Tom had mentioned that and uh, Ben did look back on it fondly. He was partly right and uh he did teach him to shave a little bit and he was like that's really nice <laughs> yeah it was nice of him i don't I, from what i recall i don't think ben thought he did such a great job he's like my face hurts you know but I, <laughs> but 
but you know, his heart was in the right place. Um, <laughs> if the razor wasn't. But uh, I, I am one hundred percent sure that Ben has far more embarrassing stories about me. So I think it's probably in my best interest to keep my mouth shut. But no, that said, I don't. Need, I can't even really think of any. I mean, there's, there's. Um, he would have a child's sense of humor sometimes, and I just remember things like. We'd be tired and, you know, we just drove a long way and everybody's exhausted and we're loading into some smelly, you know, rock club or whatever. And I set my drums down and I turn around and he's carrying in whenever totally t- straight faced with his pants down around his ankles. <laughs> and he's just like walking in and, uh, you know, he sets the gear down. And he's like, has anyone seen my pants? You know, and he, and he, it's not funny. It's just not funny it's at all. But funny. it was hilarious. It's hilarious. You know what I'm saying? It's like that kind of. He was really good for that kind of humor. Where there's like, I'm talking about him like he's dead. He is really good for that kind of humor. Um, where at the time, yeah, I just I remember him kind of like there was a moment early on where he thought that was hilarious, like walking into places with his pants down, and um, he would do it at just the right moment, and everyone would crack up. So oh, that's great. I don't know if that's embarrassing or not, but it's perfect. That's perfect. exactly what we, what we were looking for. Pat, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. This has been fantastic. We could talk to you for another 12 hours, but we, we appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot for asking. All right. Good luck with the podcast and everything. Thank you. James, it was a blast talking to Pat. We had such a good time. Thank you again to Mr. Pantano for joining us on the show. So many great stories, so many cool things. I hope we get a more expansive book with uh, Third Man Books at some point. Yeah. That details, you know, even more of these tour memories. And we talked a little bit about him joining forces with Ben Blackwell and doing like a really extensive, deep divey kind of book into that era. Boy, I would buy that in a heartbeat. Yeah, me too. But next up, E-Wolf. Let's get him on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. 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 You know, I think one of these days, I feel like 10 years down the line, we're going to get like a anthology style history thing. Mm-hmm. Jack history kind of thing that's going to come out. At some point. Or White Stripes history. And I, I feel like Pat Pantana would be a perfect addition to whatever that project would wind up being. I'm sure he would be one of the first people they would call for photographs and stories. Yes. Cool stuff. Obviously, we're outsiders looking in, and there was a friend dynamic in Detroit that grew into something strange once the White Stripes became so successful. But just on a purely, like, fan level, I'm super happy that Pat kept, like, their their friendship or at least good relations with Pat Pantano survived any friction, you know, because it mm-hmm. seems like there was some people that just dropped out there's like drama spots but pat doesn't seem to be one of those and i uh, i'm really i always get a little happy when that happens because it's it's that little link that's still sort of alive and kicking to the jack we know now to the jack they knew then kind of mm-hmm. thing you know if that makes any sense yeah a bit of continuity you know so i'm uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear that everyone's still cool and they're all still on good terms yeah it's nice to think of everybody being friends and i know that doesn't always happen in the music industry and in stuff but it's good to hear that they're still doing good 
Yeah, and speaking of our friends, uh, we got some shout-outs to give. Some people have been talking about the show and interacting with us on social media. We did a Think a Smell of Fact from Adam Kinney mm. earlier in the uh, show, but we'd like to thank Adam again. Uh, yeah. That was very nice of you, Adam. Yeah, thank you. You brought us a great fact that brought me to Mood Elevator, which I'm still stuck on. Mood Elevator, <laughs> the Brendan Benson-fronted group that also had, at one point, Electric Six band member Zach Shipp. Ooh. Who played the Colonel? <laughs> it it sorry I caught up in Mood Elevator's album Married Alive. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you, Adam. Uh, very yeah, much. Good, good luck getting out of that situation, James. Uh, we'd also like to uh, thank a couple other people who've been talking to us here. We have Hannah Warple, Thomas Matthews, Chris Smith, Lisa Martin. Richard Costa, Ban Ney, Matthew Halsey, Vesper Winchester, Art Neely. A couple of these people have interacted with us before. Matt Sherman, Stephanie Copeland, mm-hmm. uh, Brian uh, Runke. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, we also got a nice message uh, from Luke Sinclair. Appreciate you reaching out. We also heard from Scott Gell, who reached out to us uh, we, when we posted the link on the third man record collectors group nice to hear from people who have been listening for a little while and don't interact with us online because it's nice to hear from you and we we love hearing that stuff so uh anyway thanks everybody yeah we had a lot of great reaction from uh brendan benson's secret origin episode yeah indeed and we also have some uh tried and true listeners who we shout out every week such as sa franco what does that mean cool Throwing it back. We have my oh me, it's me oh my, and we also have the Red Red Rain Prosper. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Uh, no right opinion for you here, so go away, is is another one. And Melissa Swenka, who is part of the Melistocracy. Yes, we've dubbed, we've dubbed <laughs> the nickname. I think it's stuck. It's very good. Actually, we didn't, because that would be in the next... We oh, no! Time is a flat circle. All right, Melissa, we're going to break it down for you. We gave you a nickname, but it's in a future episode that hasn't aired yet. And we just said it, so... Uh, if you would like to get, uh, have a shout-out on the show, that's easy. You can interact with us on social media. We're on Facebook.com slash ThirdMen, at ThirdMenCast on Twitter. Tumblr, we're at ThirdMenPodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, you can check out our WordPress page, TheThirdMen.wordpress.com. You can shoot us an email. Uh, that is ThirdMenPodcast at gmail.com. If you uh, want to tell us about the episode or just talk to us, anything like that, go ahead and do that. The show is brought to you by Pippa, who uh, hosts us. They also host our sister show, the Yesterday and Today podcast, and we're we're just pleased as punch with Pippa. Mm. Uh, they are great, a great service, and uh, you know, I know we talk about them every episode, but can't recommend them highly enough. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, it is not cheap or easy, but Pippa really helps to make it a little bit of both. So uh, check them out, and then we are also on YouTube where uh, James has a lot of funny animations, and um, we have some visualizers of some episodes over there. Like a weirdly high number for the Olivia Jean episode for some reason. Gotta love the Olivia Jean heads. Yeah, they really came out in force for for that one. So one conspicuously high, you might say. Um, (laughs) We also did a visual version of the interview we conducted with After the Money is Gone, who are our, uh, our friends from Detroit who just put out their debut album wishes which was pressed at third man pressing so Mm -hmm. we'll give a little plug for at mig's album wishes and then if you want to rate review and subscribe to our show on itunes that would be a great thing that would help us very much we had a lot of people reviewing lately which has been awesome and um as we say every episode 
if you work the word posers into your review, we will mail you some swag. Yeah. We will literally, we've done that for lots of people. We've, uh, Johnny Misner, Ben Carnes, Vito Hicks, Brett Garski, to name but a few. So, um, yeah, all you have to do is work the word posers into your review, but give us five stars. And then <laughs> yeah. Have to say that. Take a screenshot, send it to us, and then um, we'll get your address and send you some swag for free. Um, so do that. Yeah, and if you have any listener questions, be, feel free to email them to us. We will answer them in uh, in some kind of future show or segment. Also, if you'd like to get some of that cool swag that Paul mentioned, but you want to do it the old-fashioned way and help keep our lights on, you can get it uh, at our merch store, uh, which is available at bit.ly slash thirdmenmerch. You can find it there. We've got t-shirts. We've got tote bags. We've got cutting boards, and if you buy a cutting board, I will buy you cheese. It might not be real cheese, might be government cheese, might be Kraft Singles, <laughs> which is cheese-based product, might be a bag of Cheetos. Who knows? And I would point out the government did shut down for a while, so that cheese is bound to stank. Look, it doesn't have a shelf date on it because it's completely shelf-stable. Like, that, it won't go bad, <laughs> trust me. You don't, Jimmy Carter personally packed this for you. You could make a cheese board out of this cheese pick up some good merch there we've got some new designs up we've got uh, your podcast not dead we've got some other looking for a home merch so yeah feel free we'd also like to thank sam kubert and tom valenti for the help with our theme song we're the third men as well as Susanna roundtree for the wonderful intros and outros of our program and paul i think that'll do it yeah so uh until next episode james i will be looking for a home inside of a weird boutique where i'm looking to purchase dirt bombs oh uh and i will be looking for a home on a mood elevator taking to the skies okay well we'll see you next time uh bye For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. I'm ready. Um. <laughs> I, I heard the engine start and then, like, kick off. Like... <laughs> If you hate what this experience turns out to be, you know, you can blame Co. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's purely for the waveform, so... Uh, whatever is said there is probably fine <laughs> that's cool uh, but uh, you must be jet lagged as hell how are you feeling okay <laughs> i'm all right i'm a little tired yeah the sleep is kind of off but i'm yeah. i've got two little babies at home so oh, okay. my sleep's always off anyway yeah
I will drink to that. <laughs> This is Eleanor, Eleanor. and uh, she's, six, she's six months old as of Friday. Uh-huh. So I have to uh, keep her on me while we podcast so that she doesn't uh, make noise elsewhere, because if I do, she will. Uh, so that's where we are. <laughs> that would be great. That's a nice element. And then I moved to Pittsburgh. And then... It's sort of right. less. Yeah. yeah, that. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to talk about babies. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you can do a podcast about new parents. Like <laughs> more better memory for that. <laughs> Early 90s. Oh, sweetheart. <laughs> oh, that's a perfect addition to this. Yeah. <laughs> um. I may bleep it out, but that may sound like we're calling her something nasty. Yeah, so let's... I'll figure out what to do with it. <laughs> okay. And we're not calling you anything nasty. We like you very much. Well, um, how about we just say we came up with you in a future episode? <laughs> Oh, wait a minute. So my audio recording, I left it going. I can stop it now. <laughs> Is 900. I'm Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts yesterday and today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do or my dad <laughs> from his better show than ours. <laughs> Wow. And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever. But to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? <laughs> Don't worry, we will. <laughs> You can head to our social media pages. That's Facebook.com slash Yesterday and Today Podcast or Facebook.com slash Third Men. Or you could head to Society6.com slash Kaminsky Family Podcast. That's Society, the number six, dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I Family Podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. <laughs> Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. <laughs> Guys, we need your help. <laughs> Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. All right. We'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see oh, me. For God's sake. <laughs>